大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. If you're into action movies and interested in China, I'm sure you watched Wolf Warrior Two last year, at least the trailer. What? I'm here to kill you. 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 你他妈怎么救我们啊 ？Wolf Warrior Two is basically about a Chinese lone soldier, a hero who protects aid workers in Africa from local rebels and vicious arms dealers, something like that. The film was a huge success in the People's Republic. Actually, it's the most successful Chinese movie ever, and proof for many. That the Chinese movie industry no longer relies on Hollywood for blockbusters. In fact, maybe Hollywood needs China more than China needs Hollywood these days. Hello, I'm Ruth Kirchner. Welcome to the Merrick's Experts podcast. In this episode, I want to explore the relationship between Hollywood and China. I'm joined by the arts critic, educator, and lecturer Martha Bailey's, who has written extensively on American popular culture, public diplomacy, and more recently on Hollywood and Xi Jinping's China. Welcome, Martha. Thanks for joining me in the Merrick studio here in Berlin. First of all, have you watched Wolf Warrior Two, and、uh, did you enjoy it? I watched it. I found it. Less obnoxious than I expected, because I guess I have very little taste for American-style action films. But I found it very interesting. I I did not think it was a good film, and I was somewhat surprised by its success. Why did you <coughs> think it wasn't a good film? It was too propagandistic. It was full of messages. It was it was very tendentious in terms of who was the hero, and there were some utterly absurd scenes. That just seemed totally unrealistic, and on top of that, it was taking place in a quote-unquote country called quote-unquote Africa, and the portrayal of Africa was, by itself,、uh, worthy of some criticism, <laughs> to say the least. But I was intrigued by it. But still, it broke、uh, all box office records in China. How significant is that success for the Chinese movie industry and、uh, for Hollywood, in fact? I think to the Chinese government it was highly significant. One reason I think for the movie's success was that it had action sequences, battle sequences, shootouts. At one point, there was a tank chase, and those were done up to Hollywood standards, largely because they were choreographed by a Hollywood experienced Hollywood action choreographer, who had lent his talents to this production and was probably paid quite well. The American actors who played evil mercenaries also were probably paid quite well, and unlike some efforts at action films that China has been making on its own, this was up to Hollywood standards in terms of just the basic action sequences. And for those people who go to the movies for that, it was、uh, there was a sense of triumph that, that China was finally doing it right. So China was finally doing it right, but that must have sort of raised an eyebrow too in Hollywood, because、uh, Hollywood, for so many years, has thought of China mainly as a main market where its own blockbusters would do extremely well, like、um, Kung Fu Panda, Kung Fu Panda Two, and of course the big global successes like、uh, like Titanic and and whatnot. Well, yes, but there's been an evolution to that relationship. 
There was a time when the Hollywood blockbuster would simply be admitted under the Chinese quota, would be distributed in China with through the help of a Chinese partner, and uh, approximately 25% of the revenue would go back to Hollywood. And this was a good deal, and is still a good deal, considering the size of the Chinese market. But that relationship has changed and evolved over time. So you say it has changed and evolved over time. Mm -hmm. How so? Can you talk us through some of mm -hmm. the main changes in recent years? Yeah, I mean, to, to put it in, in simple terms, China had an interest in creating blockbusters of Hollywood quality that would contain elements of Chinese culture, Chinese values. And this was worked out, curiously enough, in the sequence Kung Fu Panda 1, Kung Fu Panda 2, and Kung Fu Panda 3. Over the course of those pr three productions, that series of animated films went from being a, a purely a Hollywood production to being a co-production in Los Angeles with Chinese investment and Chinese partners, to being a production in China at a studio that was built by DreamWorks in China and under the supervision of the Chinese government. So Kung Fu Panda evolves from being a Hollywood animated feature, beloved of families everywhere, to being a, a Hollywood animated feature, beloved of families everywhere, which also contains elements that the Chinese government considers suitable for China's soft power. Because the makers of Kung Fu Panda 2 were willing, in order to please the Chinese authorities, to actually <coughs> tweak the script. And all the more so Kung Fu Panda 3, which was produced in China. And because it was produced in China, there were different rules, a different deal. One was that instead of 25% of the revenue, the U.S. studio got 43% of the revenue. And also, in the same pattern, Hollywood studios that produce in China with Chinese partners get all sorts of uh, production subsidies from the Chinese government, basically additional payments that are greater than those made by other countries, most other countries where uh, such arrangements are made to produce films. So China has provided the best kind of incentive to Hollywood, namely the economic one, to move its productions into China and also to move them under the oversight of the Chinese government. But overall, it's a relationship that worked for both sides. It was a win-win situation for both sides. The Chinese got the big movies out of it, <coughs> and uh, Hollywood could make a lot of money. So why has that changed? Well, I've written about it as a romance that's sort of starting to break up, <laughs> but uh, kind of a soap opera. I would say that there were two major factors. The first is obviously the tightening of controls on expression by the Chinese government under Xi Jinping. The directives that have come down making more and more forms of cultural expression and intellectual expression in many fields more in alignment with party ideology, a clarification of party ideology, a heightening of party ideology, and a, and a greater presence of, of actual party members in these enterprises and as, as in universities and so forth. So there's more pressure from the regime to turn it more in a propagandistic direction. And from the Hollywood side, Well, the other factor, it's not necessarily from the Hollywood side, the other factor is that the biggest effort that has been made in this co-production realm was a film that came out in early 2017 called The Great Wall, which cost upwards of uh, $170 million or more, 
I don't think it was quite up to 200, but it was very high, starring Matt Damon, directed by Zhang Yimou, who is, uh, of course, the legendary independent China director who then directed the opening ceremonies at the Olympics and has now become the darling of the regime. He's a very complicated fellow, but he's basically an artist who went from being independent to being highly successful under the current regime. And he directed The Great Wall. So they had everything going for them. They had spectacular special effects. They had a legendary story that was very agreeable to the party about brave warriors from the Song Dynasty fighting off waves of monsters who assault China every 60 years. And they had Westerners depicted as crass mercenaries who were in China to steal the secret of gunpowder. And all these elements were thought to be acceptable to everybody. It was assumed that the film would be a massive hit globally in China, in the U.S., in the North America, and in every other market. A lot of effort and money was put into it. It was sort of the culmination of this type of cooperation. And it was a flop. <laughs> a massive flop. I mean, not a massive flop. It made a little bit of money. But it didn't make the kind of money that people were expecting. So is that maybe because you have certain elements there that just don't go together very well? You have a government like the Chinese that wants to insert certain messages into such a movie. You have Hollywood aiming for a global market, different ideas of creativity maybe, and all that comes together and is not a very successful mixture. Or where mm. do you think did this whole project go wrong and with it the dream relationship between Hollywood and China? It's hard to say. I have not seen uh, the definitive analysis of the failure of the Great Wall. And it's very hard to tell why some things are a hit and why some things are not a hit. I think in some ways the reviews of the Great Wall were more negative than the film deserved, which surprised me. Of course, in China, when it failed at the box office, the negative reviews immediately began to be rolled out through state media denouncing it in all sorts of language that had not been, would not have been used if it had been a success. It was very interesting. Suddenly it was a bad movie after the state had invested so much energy and time and, and oversight. Suddenly they were denouncing it as a, as a bad idea to begin with, which is very curious and I don't think convinced very many Chinese. In the U.S., I think people took a somewhat blinkered view. I saw the film. I watched it. I could not distinguish why this particular film would be a flop. I'm not a big fan of these tremendous blockbusters. It seemed rather odd to me. For example, many of the warriors defending the Great Wall in the 11th century were extremely attractive young women. And that struck me as perhaps unrealistic, <laughs> but they were fun to watch and they had cute outfits and uh, it had so many elements. You know, but this is something that happens with Hollywood sometimes. You take all these elements that are crowd-pleasing. The market research has designated them as crowd-pleasing, and so they're all combined, but somehow they're not combined in the right way. Yes, yeah, so <clears> you <throat> sort of have missed sort of the magic formula yeah. that all the right ingredients have to come together. But it is also a case of maybe audiences and what they like sort of diverging, that uh, the Western audience likes different movies from, let's say, the Chinese audience. Well, I think for the Western audience, it might have been the, the heavy hand of, of the Chinese state, which decreed that these scruffy, dirty, long-haired Western mercenaries would be overawed by the majesty of the Song Dynasty troops 
of their war machine and of the sheer height of the of the Great Wall, which was approximately ten times higher than it is in reality, and that somehow the fact that the Westerners were converted to China and began to fight on the side of the warriors and began to see that this was something worth fighting for and, and abandoned their crass search for gunpowder, that might not have played too well with American audiences just because it seemed dumb, you know. I don't know what the Chinese audiences thought. I don't know why it was not successful in China, to be honest with you. Because there have been Chinese movies that were very successful in China, but have flopped abroad. But they had, oh, yes. but they had sort of considerable <coughs> Chinese elements or were telling mm -hmm. Chinese stories, maybe that uh, the international audience are not so familiar with. Now, it may be during an earlier period, when in the early days of this partnership, China aspired to making its own Chinese-themed blockbusters. I mean, I don't mean Kung Fu Panda. I mean costume dramas with lots of martial arts. And the spark for that was, of course, back in 2000 when uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was a surprise global hit. The figures of what it cost to make and what it earned at the box office seem very puny to us now, but it was a big hit for the time, a surprise hit. And this caused a bit of a crisis in China where the State Administration of Film, Radio, and Television, SARFT, had a high-level meetings and said, how can a movie with a Chinese theme be so successful that was not made in China? Because it was directed by Ang Lee, who is from Taiwan and who was living in the United States. There were Chinese-Americans involved and other Chinese people of Chinese background. It had, a, it had very distinct Chinese themes, but it was not made in the People's Republic of China. So then after that, in the early 2000s, there was a slew of films made in similar way. Martial arts, wuji, people flying through the air with swords and kicking each other and flying over rooftops. We all have seen these films. They're, they're real eye candy. They're beautiful to look at. The greatest fighters tend to be, again, attractive young women. <laughs> and so there's a whole slew of them. But that was in the early 2000s. So to the extent that The Great Wall revived some of that, I think maybe Chinese audiences said, enough already. We've moved on. That would be my guess, but it's only a guess. This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is the art critic and educator Martha Baileys. We're discussing <coughs> China and Hollywood. Now, it's not just uh, Hollywood that has an interest in the Chinese market, but there's also the fact that Chinese investors, among them the Dalian Wanda conglomerate, but also others, have invested in the American movie industry. How much does Hollywood actually need Chinese money? Well, my impression is that until very recently, it was felt in Hollywood that they needed Chinese money quite a lot. And there was a kind of crisis when the investment in China was, began to be pulled back at the end of 2017, after the flop of the Great Wall, mid-2017, and for other reasons as well, trying to curb the power of people like Wang, the regime began to kind of disinvest and deprive them of their agreements. And a lot of promises were broken, a lot of contracts were canceled, the money that had already been agreed to and paid was allowed to remain, but suddenly Hollywood suffered a sudden kind of collapse of massive Chinese investment partly politically motivated in China, but also, I think, due to the flop of this one film. But I think Hollywood, I, I actually don't know, because things have moved on a bit from then, okay. which is 
and this introduces the subject of all these films that are being made based on Marvel comic books, uh, which is a trend that has been going on for quite some time. But a few years back, Marvel, the Marvel Comic Book Company, be, started its own studio. I don't know how much of the investment in that studio was Chinese. But the point is, these films, the first, of course, being Spider-Man, but then there's a whole slew of other super superheroes, the latest, of course, being uh, Black Panther. These films have a robust global audience that seems to be surprising everyone. It's very predictable, which Hollywood loves. The latest term is the cinematic universe. Not just a series of films or sequels, but a whole universe of characters, like a whole mythology of characters, all of whom have interrelationships with each other, all come from these comic book sources. And they're plowing that field now, and they're making a lot of money. So I don't know if today they are still as anxious about Chinese investment as they were even a few months ago. Oh, even a few months ago, because well, when, you, when you said earlier <coughs> that uh, China has sort of curbed some, its, some mm. of its overseas investments, especially when it comes to Dalian mm. Wanda, that would actually affect Hollywood quite significantly, mm. wouldn't it? Hollywood is still quite keen on Chinese <coughs> cooperation and collaboration, yeah. well, isn't let me, it? Let me put it out there as a question mark. I think it's too soon to say whether this Marvel universe of cinematic universe idea, how, what sort of legs it has. It's done very well. I think with the opening of theaters in Saudi Arabia, which is a recent development, there's lots of money over there too. And, uh, you know, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed Salman is welcoming Hollywood. Black Panther is the, one of the first films ever shown in, in a public theater in Saudi Arabia. It's actually not, but that's how it's being touted. So Hollywood is very good at landing on its feet. My concern is not that Hollywood will lose investment, frankly. My concern is that to stay in China, which it clearly wants to do, Hollywood is going to compromise uh, freedom of expression. But why? <coughs> I mean, just sort of tweaking a script here and there. I mean, surely that, that is not a big deal. Well, now we're back at Wolf Warrior 2. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it will be that. Kung Fu Panda 3 is not a propaganda piece. It has many more wise sages and floating lotus blossoms than Kung Fu Panda 1. And that is due to the influence of Sarft. But I think given the present regime in China and the tightening of controls everywhere and the, and the heavy insistence on being in alignment with the ideological worldview of the party, there will be more than just minor tweaks. And what, how Hollywood will react to that, I'm not able to say. It will be very interesting. I think it bears watching. Again, as an American and a fan of Hollywood and a longtime film critic, I am quite concerned at the prospect of Hollywood lending its immense talent and experience to becoming a kind of part of a Chinese propaganda machine. And again, the propaganda is mostly domestic. It's mostly for the Chinese audience. But even so, I, I find that kind of disturbing. But that wouldn't really affect us, would it? If, if they are sort of uh, trying to please the Chinese authorities, I mean, Hollywood can do, still do movies for the rest of the world that are not, not affected by that. Well, you could say that. I would not say that. I think Hollywood has succeeded in large part because it is the film industry in the world that has the most freedom of expression. It wasn't always the case. Legally speaking, the status of cinema in the U.S., was uh, for many years between 1915 and 1968, roughly, 
uh, film was a co defined legally as a commodity. And uh, so it was subject to government censorship, which is something people don't realize. There were, there were many court battles fought to win the freedom that Hollywood has as a form of expression under the First Amendment. It wasn't always so. And because of that, I find it very galling to see uh, Hollywood so willing to compromise and to submit to the oversight of a foreign government when they would never submit to the oversight of the U.S. government. But uh, to submit to the oversight of a foreign <coughs> government, is there any evidence of that? I mean, are there any movies out there where you can actually already see China's influence? Well, if you look over the last several years, you can see China's influence in lots of probably minor ways. One is the substitution which has occurred over the years in films with Asian villains of taking the Chinese villains out and putting in North Koreans. <laughs> There's a film called Red Dawn, I think, about, it was a remake of an old film of Soviets invading the U.S. and being held off by a group of teenagers from Maine, I think it was. So they did a remake in the 90s of Chinese soldiers invading and being held off by a group of American teenagers. And after the film was completed, it occurred to the studio that Richard Gere, the actor, had gotten in trouble in China for a film called Red Corner, which uh, showed the Chinese justice system as being, shall we say, somewhat less than what Americans would consider to be due process. He was in favor of Tibetan independence at the time, and so he was feeling negative about China. That film, Red Corner, put a MGM studio out of business in China for about five years, I think, something like that. So they went back in this film, Red Dawn, and they changed all the villains. They took out all the scenes with Chinese villains and put in North Korean villains because, as a friend of mine in Hollywood put it, North Koreans don't buy movie tickets. <laughs> this, of course, may be changing now. So that's one oft-cited example. But, you know, there are subtle things that go on. In a season of House of Cards, a Chinese villain character was made to look more positive and also somehow distance was put between him and the Chinese government. He was a bad businessman. He was not a bad uh, political guy. And they've, they've made adjustments. There are all sorts of subtle adjustments have been made over the years. Wolf Warrior may be a trend leader. It may be suggestive of what's going to happen in the future. But I would look more toward the action films, the blockbusters, the, you know, the sort of Marvel comic things, because I think they really do lend themselves to manipulation. So then finally, how would you want Hollywood to deal with this challenge of sort of subtle Chinese influences? Uh, is there anything that Hollywood or that the big movie producers should do about it or can do about it? Yeah, I think there is something they can do, which is judge each case individually and be mindful, draw their own red lines. Where do we not compromise? One red line that I would draw would be the inclusion of blatantly anti-American, anti-democratic, anti, anti, anti the, the, the values of the First Amendment in the U.S., the values of any Western liberal democracy, blatant attacks on that, attempts to discredit that. I would definitely draw a red line. Hollywood has, has attacked the U.S. system of government many times, but that's an internal thing. That's self-criticism by a film industry in a free country. Doing it for the Chinese government, I would consider to be different, and I would draw a red line there. I don't think Hollywood's going to draw a lot of these lines unless it is placed under some public scrutiny and some public pressure, by which I don't really mean the government. I mean just the old American tradition of being a watchdog. 
So you see then creative freedom at risk? Potentially. I think there should be more watchdogs saying, you really shouldn't put that in that movie. And But there's a large Chinese-American community. There are a lot of people in America who are thinking about this. So I think there are some watchdogs who could say, this studio went too far when they made that film. And just, you know, do it in a kind of more subtle way. You know, I, I'm not advocating pre-censoring Hollywood movies, much less having the government do it. I'm just advocating an awareness and a mindfulness. Hollywood's very mindful of its reputation. And a little of that, a little pressure along those lines might help. Okay, then. Uh, Hollywood should become more aware of Chinese influences and Chinese pressures. Uh, otherwise, it might risk losing its creative freedom. Martha Baileys, thanks very much for your analysis and insights. Thanks very much for talking to me. I'm Ruth Kirchner. You've been listening to the Merrick's Experts podcast. Uh, thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.